Hello and welcome to Shank Talks Bonhoeffer, a conversation all about the life, times, and interests of this remarkable uh, World War II era church leader. Uh, most will know one uh, who gave his commitment, it's all, including his life. When at age 39, he was hanged by uh, order of the highest echelons of Nazi power at the Flossenburg concentration camp in Germany, but only after leaving us a wonderful legacy, uh, not only in his biography, but in his ideas conveyed to us through a library now available in English. But uh, there are a myriad of other books that are out there uh, that will help fill out uh, the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and uh, help us to apply his ideas in our own time. One of those books has just hit the shelves, as they say, or at least the virtual shelves uh, for some people. Uh, a new release with Fortress Press entitled Keys to Bonhoeffer's House. And I pronounce it that way because that last word is spelled as Germans spell it, H-A-U-S. Uh, we might say house here, uh, pretty close. <laughs> and on the phone, no, it's not a phone these days. Actually, we have a much better connection via the internet. My internet connected guest is the author of that book, Laura Fabricate. And uh, Laura, you have given us a really unique angle on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and it comes from your unique experience in the literal Bonhoeffer house in Berlin. Can you start us there and, and talk a little bit about that experience? Then I'm going to take you back in time and ask you to share with us your own Bonhoeffer story, how it is you even came to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Or maybe that's tied up in the house experience, but what got you to Bonhoeffer's house in Berlin? <laughs> I'm happy to answer that question, Robin. It's a real treat to talk with you today. Um, so our family uh, is in the U.S. Foreign Service and the third country that we served in um, outside of the United States was in Germany. My husband was posted to the U.S. Embassy in Berlin. And so our family lived in Berlin for three years. And we were there from the summer of 2016 until the summer of 2019. And in that, in the fall of 2016, as we were settling into our home, um, I discovered that we lived not far from the adulthood home of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and also not too far away also from his childhood home in Berlin. And I visited many times. There is a um, sort of like a nonprofit organization that runs it um, and it's staffed by volunteers. And I went um, first with my family, my husband and our three kids, and then I returned many times thereafter um, because I was so fascinated hearing his life story told within the setting in which he lived, uh, which his parents lived, in which he was the, their only um, unmarried adult 
um, child and he would come during in his very itinerant adulthood, he would return to that home in Berlin. Um, and it was the place that he was in fact arrested from as well by the Gestapo in 1943. So on um, on a whim, I asked if I could become a volunteer. Um, I was becoming pretty well known to the staff at the house at that point. And, and I said, I, I'm an American and I only speak English, but is this a possibility? And they said, it is. We'd be happy to have you join us. And thus I began to to learn um, Dietrich's story and learn to narrate it to others. And then for the next two years, I gave tours in that house as well. Bravo. You know, I have to tell you that that house is associated with one of my great disappointments. And I only say that because I once did a pilgrimage in the steps of Bonhoeffer all through Europe, every major point in his life from birth to death. And I got to the house that you're speaking of, and I couldn't contact anyone. Uh, I I wish I had had your number. I don't know if you were there. Uh, in 2010, but in any case, I couldn't gain entrance to the house, oh, no. and I haven't been back since. So I- I'm going to make a confession here that I have not yet read your book. I have read terrific reviews of it, in- including the one in Christianity Today, yeah, which is you. really impressive. You have gotten wonderful reviews, and I can't wait to read it, and it's in my to-be-read and I think I'm going to pull some others out of the way in the sequence so I can get there, especially after this conversation. But just reading about the way you treat this story and how the house is connected to that story and all that you extrapolate from that experience, it's really a wonderful way for you to tell us this story and then connect it to our own experience in our own time. But can I take you back a little bit uh, to when and how you first got interested in Bonhoeffer as a subject. What took you to him? Yeah, so um, I grew up in the church, um, an American evangelical church. And so I don't think, I talk about this in my second chapter related to how I came to learn his story, because I think there's a lot of people who have as I describe it, kind of ambient knowledge of him. There's name recognition. Um, There's a kind of a hazy understanding of the narrative of his life. And we kind of, we might know that he's related to Nazi Germany. And and I think part of what I had to learn in, first of all, in really humanizing him in my mind um, and taking him off of a, in some ways, a kind of pillar that I think kind of obscures his humanity in some way. Um, Seeing him within the context of a house and particularly within the context of his relationships was probably the most powerful aspect of that learning process for me. Um, And then also learning to see him not simply through my kind of gauzy American narrative, but really hearing and understanding his life from the Germans that narrated it. That was particularly important to me because, you know, I think as Americans, we we look at what happened in the Nazi era and then obviously through World War II with a particular kind of lens. But to actually think about being a German in that context, I think is harder for us to. Um, and so um, I I talk about, in some ways, learning more about him in college. Um, I I was a student, an undergraduate at Wheaton College, and um, 
I had a close friend who actually did a thesis on his senior thesis on Bonhoeffer, and we talked a lot about him. And I watched this friend who had also grown up in an, uh, I think, in a more conservative evangelical setting. I watched his world in some ways um, kind of get set on fire as he was learning about Bonhoeffer. And he really came to question a lot of the things that he had long assumed were simply true about the world and um, and particularly obviously the relationship to Christian faith and um, political party. So I don't go into that exhaustively, but that was probably when I first started learning about Bonhoeffer outside of like popular quotes or little, you know, little paragraphs about his life that we would regard him as a hero, but, um, but understanding him as a human being and as a man in a particular historical context. So um, that was um, that's really kind of how I came to him. And I think I read some of his, what we would call his devotional materials, like Cost of Discipleship and Life Together. Those books, I think, now have a very different meaning to me, understanding them in the context of his life story um, and kind of what he was doing with them, that they weren't simply merely spiritual books. They had um, very, you know, obviously commanding and costly expectations attached to them that were, you know, whole life expectations. And um, so I, I would say I had to do a lot of very conscious, like cultural learning and a lot of listening and making sense of him um, that in a way that wasn't in my context, it wasn't in my American cultural context. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned this aspect because uh, as far as my appreciation of Bonhoeffer and everything around him has so much to do with context yeah. and his context in particular. And I think you're right. Uh, when we universalize him and generalize him, we lose some of the most important elements. Mm -hmm. And I think it will go to how you end uh, your treatment uh, of his story. But in, in between, you, you do introduce us to, um, as I understand it, uh, some of the more mundane and quotidian uh, elements of Bonhoeffer's life. As you point out, he was not a superhero. Yeah. Uh, he was not uh, half divine, half human. <laughs> uh, he was not a cartoon character. He was a real guy. Uh, yeah. And I think that comes out especially in his prison correspondence when you read his letters from prison. And there's all kinds of everyday things that come up in his life, just like they do uh, in our own, uh, including uh, relational dynamics and so on. Yeah. Uh, but there's a whole lot of other stuff. I mean... Uh, he sends comical postcards to friends. <laughs> uh, he right. asks his parents for money. Yes. Uh, he details um, his own sickness. Uh, yes. And uh, he asks for cigarettes and special foods that he enjoys. And this is the real guy that we yes. see. And, and did being in the house help you to appreciate that dimension of him? Yes. And actually, the fact that you mentioned cigarettes is pr it's probably one of the favorite details that 
and I regret that you didn't get into the house for this exact reason. One of the really special places that um, a, the guide would um, show visitors, uh, first you would get up, usually I would, I could easily talk for about an hour and a half, and that was at a pretty brisk clip, um, telling people about his life, which I will not subject you to. Um, but I would end, have taken notes on every <laughs> minute of your of your lecture. <laughs> Thank you. Um, at the end of that, though, and we would be sitting in kind of um, the rooms that were originally when the house was built in 1935. So it was his parents' home. Um, number. This is Marienburger Allee, number 43. And um, we'd be sitting in a, now it's a conference room, and it was his father's waiting room because his father was a prominent um, psychiatrist, as you know, Rob. And and then uh, they had collapsed a wall in there to make this conference room, and the other por portion of it was his father's office, so waiting room and office. And you you sit there listening to the guide speak, and we refer to um, primary photographs on the wall, so pictures that were from the family um and of, of faces in the family and settings that they knew and loved, important places that are part of his narrative. And each guide tells often that we try to focus on something that we're particularly interested in. We obviously can answer questions about his life to the best of our ability. But at the end of that time, we then take visitors up uh, two flights of stairs to what we would as Americans call the third floor. It's the European second floor. Um, and that's where Bonhoeffer's room was. And um, when you walk in, and I'll actually, I'll, I'll give you a funny story in just a second about this. When you walk in, you see his clavichord immediately within the door, and he liked mm. to play the clavichord. Straight ahead, opposite from the door, you would see his desk. And one of the really most touching um uh, things about his desk is that there is still a cigarette burn on the blotter. There's, mm -hmm. it's like a teal colored blotter. And, um, I remember from my first visit there, listening to the guide say, just imagine this room blue with smoke. He was a heavy cigarette smoker. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and this burn is in some ways this, it's a marvelous, um, like poetic mark in some ways about who he was as a human being. And it was the same desk at which he was writing portions of his ethics or his essay after 10 years that he shared with some of his fellow conspirators. One of the funny things, um, and this is just to be purely self-deprecating, but when I was first writing my draft of this book, I... Um, obviously, I was sharing it with um, some of my colleagues who are very well versed in Bonhoeffer, you know, Germans that have deeply studied his life and have been with the house for a long time. And I talk, I talk about one of these um, guides in particular in the book periodically, because uh, he really did help train me. And I waxed on and on about this room and even a bit kind of poetically about the bed that was in the room. And I would often say, oh, yes, please sit on the bed to, you know, visitors if they would ask. And you're also surrounded by bookshelves that Dietrich and his best friend, Eberhard Bethke, built. And there are books all throughout it, books that he owned, that all of his original books have been donated to a library. Um, but the actual editions that he owned are on the shelf, along with some journals and periodicals um, to which he contributed. Um, and, and I... I just assumed that the bed was his too. I had never actually asked, like, is this Bonhoeffer's bed? So I had gone on and on about this in my, in my draft. And my colleague Gottfried was completely horrified when he sent his comments back. He was like, Laura, the bed is Ikea. <laughs> oh. 
so I promptly took it out and realized, like, I think that might have been one of the only pieces in the room that was not original to the room. And I, yeah, so. Uh, well, I, I can a- just imagine a, a note home from Bonhoeffer at oh. Finkenwalde saying, send my Ikea bed. Exactly. <laughs> And honestly, so much of my experience was that, was having to learn. And, you know, I was trying to use my imagination and engage his story and obviously trying to be interesting. But some I constantly step into, you know, potholes of learning. And that's part of the beauty of cross-cultural stuff is you you kind of have to be willing to make a fool of yourself sometimes. So obviously, I promptly took that out of the out of the document. Well, and then Yes. Good for you. Good <laughs> and changed for you. it changed it in my uh, in my tour as well. But as to get to your point though, um the house for me really represented I think one of the key things that I needed to change in terms of the way that I thought of him, which was um as sort of an isolated hero and not seeing him within the context of his family and his family was a remarkable family as you know, Rob, just Indeed. absolute a fire, like just like sparklers in the world, just incredibly intelligent, um, interesting people. And I was really very taken in when I learned more about his parents and their marriage, because their marriage was really kind of interesting, um, very diverse kind of, they each had very strong views about the world that really didn't always match up. And, but they, yet they lived with, um, such respect and love. I think, uh, you know, I think that they spent, they, they were together for most of their 50 years of marriage, um, not apart. And, um, so they, yeah, I, I, I think learning about him in the context of a family and that he had actually, he was not a self-made man that kind of came to his ideas, um, just from within himself, but he was actually, he had actually been brought up in a certain way. And there's a lot that can be credited to his parents for some of his skills and care with which he lived his life. Um, and and I think you see aspects of that from both of his parents in his life. Um, and, and then also, in addition to that, the house not only represents the relationships of family, but it also represents relationships within a community. So one of the volunteers at the house... Um, because there are many people kind of come and go and they're volunteering was she was a school teacher at the gymnasium that that Bonhoeffer attended before university. Um, it was called the Grunwald Gymnasium. Um, it's now called the Walter Rathenau Gymnasium um, in Berlin. And she was a teacher there and was very curious to see the plaque on the wall that commemorated um, Dietrich and Klaus Bonhoeffer and then others that were listed there, other other classmates. And she realized so many of these, you know, obviously they're all men on the on the plaque, but so many of these men had actually forged relationships of trust um, in very early on in their lives. And so when trust became a, an, an especially valuable currency, it mattered a great deal that they actually had friendships um, that they could that they could lean on in time when times got difficult. And um, I think some of those the relational aspects often get lost in, as you rightly put it, in sort of the heroic telling of his life where there's just the singular spotlight on Dietrich. And and we miss some of the the fabric in which he was actually to which he belonged and in which he was formed. And um, and that was a fabric of relationship. And of course, uh 
not only was that family a unit, I mean, they really did operate as a unit, but Dietrich would would not be the only family member to be lost uh, to uh, the struggle. Uh, There were other family members who were executed as he was. So uh, they paid the price together uh, as well. We're going to do a a series of podcasts on the family. Mm. I wonder if we might bring you back uh, during that series. (laughs) I think you'd have a lot to contribute to that. (laughs) And there are a number of good volumes, some of them out of print now, uh, that are stories told by the family uh, or family members, at least, and then close friends. I'm just looking up at my shelf now to remind me of the volume entitled I Knew Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yes. uh, Which is, I think, long out of print now. Is that right? Uh, I don't think there's a modern edition of that. I believe that's correct. I do not own that copy. I have never read that book, but I'm aware of it. Yes. I'll share mine with your, your, if you'll trade (laughs) something with me. Uh, I I don't even know where I found it, but uh, years ago I obtained it. And it's a great telling of, you know, this very personal and human side. And maybe using that as a pivot here, I can get you to turn towards uh, the way you... um, conclude your telling it is an unusual one. It, your, your telling of the Bonhoeffer story and experience is not relegated to a particular time or place. In other yeah. words, yours is not entirely an historical treatment of Bonhoeffer. You, you bring him very much into the present, or at least you help us to live our lives uh, differently by looking at Bonhoeffer's experience. Tell us about that. H- how does sure. the book, what's the trajectory? Yeah. So I do, um, to just to almost give you a, just a quick walkthrough of the contents, I do discuss, um, I, I get into a little political theory, but it's very gentle and it's uh, not too, not too uh, obtuse. Um, I, I explore aspects of his life and particularly how he understood himself and the places that he belonged to. And that's where I do describe a lot about the family. Um, and then I also connect his life to um, scriptural practices of reading as well as um the, the influence of the Moravian church um, in his family. So some of his scriptural practices came from both his mother and then also from his nannies. Um, he, he had been you know, taught to draw daily from the Bible uh, through the Moravian uh, daily texts. And so I talk about the Moravians a little bit and their place um, in Hernhut, uh, Germany. I've just started spending time with the Moravians here. They're, you know, their U.S. base, if you will, isn't so far from Washington D.C. And I've been with them on a retreat, and and it only because I knew that he used their devotional, uh, their uh, daily texts, which right. you know has been used for in the United States over two hundred years, uh, over right. two hundred fifty years. 
So, uh, yeah, so say on. Uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, so you'll, you'll, you will journey with me to Hernhut. And if you do get back to Germany to visit the Bonhoeffer House, you should, you should tag on a, a trip to Hernhut, which is the original, um, kind of original settlement of the Moravians. Um, and it's, it's a really sweet town and very interesting history. So, and then I talk about how Dietrich, um, uh, crossed boundaries and he um, learned more about who he was by exploring worlds that were very different from him. So obviously some of that I describe what um, particularly uh, the Zeon's Kersha um, parish church that he to which he um, he was a a teacher there for a confirmation class that um, you probably even maybe stopped in at that church when you I were. Did. Uh, yeah, good. Um, and I described sort of like why, why that part of Berlin was so different from the part that, that Bonhoeffer was from. And I relate it in some ways then to his experience going to, to New York for the first time at Union Theological Seminary and his ex- and his experience, uh, really formative experience in Harlem and learning from African-Americans um, and their very rich uh, uh, intellectual and theological tradition of uh, theology of the cross or theology that centers on the sufferings of Christ. Um, and just how important th- that was to people in Nazi resistance in Germany, which uh, many people would say that. Um, so, and then I, there, I, I'll just say for the title of my book, it's called Keys to Bonhoeffer's House, because I use this metaphor of keys as a way to describe things that I learned about Bonhoeffer that I thought corresponded to my life. And I think one of the trickiest things about, um, sometimes about Bonhoeffer discussions is that we take him and make principles, kind of absolutist principles out of his life. And we think, we try to use his life kind of like analogically, like thinking through him, like trying to figure out, you know, how can I be a Bonhoeffer today? And it often gets very messy and very disconnected. It disconnects him kind of from his actual realities. And it also disconnects us from ours. So I tried to find ways to say, well, I see this in him. And I think we could all say we could use this as a as a key to understanding his life and how we might we might be connected. Um, one of the things, um, Rob, that you mentioned, and I'll I'll wrap up this little tour. I won't get you through all of the chapters, but um, you mentioned that the Bonhoeffer family, obviously they, they, they lost more than Dietrich and that's true. And one of the chapters I talk about um, how many deaths Dietrich and others had to die even before they formally mm. lost their lives. Mm. And, um, and I think that that is, it, it uh, it struck me, I think, early on, realizing just what a tragic waste um, the Nazi experience was, which I don't think anyone would doubt are saying that. But just the all of the dreams, for instance, that these early leaders of the church probably had about what their careers might be like and kind of, you know, what they hoped for in life. And so many people were were pitched into very difficult positions and had to make choices. And in some ways, they were going to die either way, right? Like they were either going to die spiritual deaths in acquiescing further and further to the Nazi demands. As or, so many Christians right? did. That's right. Exactly. During that period. Exactly. Or they were going to have to die deaths that 
were in the opposite direction, right? Like refusing to participate and therefore living um, a far more difficult, far more complicated life than, you know, any of us would want. And I see that pattern in Dietrich as well, that he, um, there were things in his life that he, he had to let go of long before he gave his life, um, or had his life taken. Um, and, and it's a, it's a worthwhile reminder for us who, who claim to follow Jesus and who want to have the cross be the thing that, that marks us and marks our lives, that we, this is something we need to attend to in our own. So my, I wrap up the book, sorry, very briefly, I wrap it up by um, talking about, and obviously all this is set, set very specifically to place. So I do a lot of place descriptions. So you, you get a lot of glimpses into the places that he lived, but then also in which I did my daily life. And, um, and I talk about seeing regularly this one, uh, a building that is in ruin and how it's basically a building that I would pass all the time, taking my son to his preschool. Um, and it's very close to um, Pastor um, Martin Niemöller's uh, St. Anne's Dahlem Church in Berlin. So it's you know it's it's close to um, a you know an important and very historical church in the in, in the Confessing Church movement, where um, the pastor's emergency league was precisely. formed. That's the, exactly uh, right in the kitchen of the manse. That's uh, right. The, the house there where Pastor Niebuhler lived. Precisely. And, you, and that's a house that you can visit as well. There is also a, a Niemöller house that you can visit. Um, and the, But there's this, it's a building that had once been um, part of the free university complex, and it was used to teach students about anatomy. But it's now kind of in the midst of a civil um, battle in some ways that you know, someone wants to repurpose it, someone owns the building, and someone wants to repurpose it, and there's a lot of disagreement, and the building has now fallen into ruin, and it seems as though no one really cares what's happening to the house. And I introduced the idea of civic housekeeping, um, that we, in some ways, we need to recognize the places to which we have responsibility, and that we need to, we need to take responsibility for those places that we actually bear on those on those places um, and so we need to in some ways we need to start caring again for our civic house um, and that might not mean that we will live exactly as Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived um, it may be that we have to do something far more mundane but something that God is actually calling us to do and and part of that would be simply caring for our neighbors as an expression of our commitment to Jesus um, and it, it so it may not be this like you know a heroic gesture or it may not involve conspiracy or plots, um, but it, it may be simply caring for the block that you live on, knowing the people's names around you, checking on them. Um, and I think, you know, in this time in which we're recording this, like this is obviously something that is, it's gotten more complicated to do. It's tricky um, to care for one's neighbors safely, um, but doing doing what we can creatively and seeing seeing what God might have for us um, to, to, to really express his love and care for human flourishing. Well, it was certainly tricky in Bonhoeffer's time yes. to do that same thing, and yet he did it in yes. the care of uh, his fellow seminarians under conditions far worse than anything we're living under, even in this time of COVID-19 as yes. we're recording this. 
So we need to meet those challenges just as he met those challenges. Right. And, you know, something struck me as, as you were talking about this element uh, of your telling uh, of the story. Uh, and you mentioned uh, with regard to Bonhoeffer how much he had to surrender, to give up, to die to, uh, before uh, giving his physical life uh, at the... Um, at the hangman's noose. Uh, and one of those uh, points that has always really struck me was when he had to surrender his unqualified patriotism yeah. for Germany. Yeah. Um, there came a point where he had to pray for his own country's defeat. And, yes. the, you know, there comes a time when we have to give up even our idealized notions. Yes, yes. And in addition to that, um, I think for me, I talk about how he also had to surrender um, his own sense of righteousness. Uh, the, I think that was one of also one of his excruciating letting go was... Um, the the task of of doing the right thing and wanting to be perceived as doing the right thing and um and that's a tricky part of his his ethical thinking i think it it is it is tricky to talk about it in our you know in daily life but he finally he made decisions um that he felt he was you know obviously in some ways constrained to do in doing the right thing but that though his doing the right thing would appear as unrighteousness it would it, he could be judged for it he would be misunderstood and um and i and i think that was another death and he had to lean quite hard on um on jesus as his uh, justifier um and and realize that he was yeah, in the end, it, there was nothing that he was going to do that would be not guilty. He would be guilty one way or the other. So, yeah. well, I really what what um, accelerated my reading plans uh, <laughs> for Keys to Bonhoeffer's House uh, was uh, this element that you end on because I th uh, you would have your own opinion in this, but I think the generally accepted um uh consensus is that really the core of Bonhoeffer's theology is the question he posed who is Jesus Christ for us today yes that Christ is not uh, a distant um you know subject relegated again to a time and place mm -hmm. neither is Bonhoeffer mm -hmm. he's very relevant today but what really matters is who is Christ for me for us in our time and in our place and you seem to help us uh, at least begin to answer that question by bringing Bonhoeffer from his time to our time and into the challenges we face and how he can assist us. Uh, as you say, it was in my late in life doctoral 
uh, work that I first really seriously treated Bonhoeffer. And I remember saying to one of my chief advisors, a world-class Bonhoeffer scholar, Peter Frick, you may know Peter. Mm. And uh, as we were talking, and I said, well, what I really want to do is reduce Bonhoeffer down to maybe, say, three key principles. Or, <laughs> and he said, oh, you don't know much about Bonhoeffer at all, do you? <laughs> It's very humbling. <laughs> you can't reduce him down to the yeah. ABCs. You just can't. And the best way is to just allow him to inspire us, to maybe point us in a certain direction, to help us reflect on our own experiences and answer only for ourselves. Yes. Who is Jesus Christ for us today? So when I read that review that indicated <laughs> this is how you end your book. Uh, yes. Who, you know, what does this mean for us yes. in our own time, in our own place, facing our own challenges? I yeah. said, "Oh, this is a book <laughs> I need to get and read <laughs> and work with," and we plan to do that. Uh, I think I just may make it mandatory reading for our fellows cohort today. I don't know that they'll appreciate that, but they will after they read your book. And I'm going to do it as a group study, and I hope many others will. And Laura, thank you for contributing this to the great Bunhofer legacy and library. And you're helping all of us to get us where we need to be and to see him the way we really need to see him. And, uh, and we're going to make good use of your work. So I really appreciate you taking us through the book, uh, through the experience. Folks, make sure you go, hopefully, to smile. Amazon.com because you can name the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute as your charity. And when you buy Laura's book, Keys to Bonhoeffer's House, uh, spell it H-A-U-S, yeah. uh, you'll help the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute with each purchase. But if they want to know more, if readers want to know more about you, Laura, yeah. where is it best for them to go? Sure. I have, first of all, thank you, Rob. It's all very kind of you to say. Um, I have a very modest website, um, laurafabrici.com. Um, it's not an easy last name, but you can see it listed, I'm sure, in the show notes. Um, and you can reach out to me there. And I'm also on Twitter, lmfabrici uh, is my handle. And um, yeah, I'm, I, I have articles out there. Feel free to just Google my name. You'll find, find things around. So F A B R Y C K Y. That's Fabricy it. Yes. Has Polish origins, you told me. It does. It does. <laughs> yes. So uh, great. Our folks came from the same part of the world, maybe uh, yes. at the same time. Uh, Laura, it's been delightful. Same. Uh, Thank talking you. Talking with you and can't wait now uh, to bury myself in <laughs> keys to Bonhoeffer's house. Then I'm going to start talking it up everywhere. And uh, folks, you'll find more about Laura and her book at our website, tdbi.org. Make sure you get to her website. Let's bring her into our family. <laughs> Uh, you're an honorary member now, Laura, and I'll look forward to another conversation with you in the future. Thanks for joining me on Shank Talks Bonhoeffer. Thank you so much.